Weren't you a banker at a point? Ordinary, no excitement in your life. I mean, it just sounds like you. Come on, man. I am the manifestation of the boring banker. <laughs> I am the first of the boring banker. Okay. Yeah. No, right. But this is a difference. Mark, hi. Good morning. Good morning on this lovely public holiday. Oops, long weekend. Yes. That's find itself between a public holiday. But you and I are at work. No, yeah, we're going for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My name is Tim Cohen. I'm the editor of Business Maverick. I'm talking to Mark Barnes, as usual, who's an entrepreneur. We are recording on the day of the big stay away. Mark, do you think that the EFF was brilliant because they decided to have a stay away on a day between a holiday and a long weekend? Opportunistic takes uh, precedence over brilliant. Yes, please come on. Brilliant. I don't think it's just brilliant. Because, you know, I mean, maybe next week we'll have something, you know, to talk about with hindsight. But uh, it could go either way. I think it is a kind of a pass-fail thing. Uh, so let's wait and see. Okay. Right. So the big news of the day, of course, on the business front is that Credit Suisse has been taken over by UBS. So now this is really incredible. This is a 126-year-old Swiss bank. You wouldn't have thought that Swiss banks were vulnerable to anything. They are Swiss banks, after all. And now, all of a sudden, boom, just in a matter of days, UBS has taken over its longtime rival. What do you make of all of this? I mean, it is crazy. I mean, it's just incredible. This is really central banks around the world herding cats. Okay, that's what's happened. Uh, because the merger wasn't a voluntary exercise. It was forced upon to the threes, probably necessarily. It's probably great news for UBS. But here's the real issue. So there was the, the central banks have stepped in and required this in order to avoid systemic risk and to save the financial system. And listening to it a bit to save the Swiss name. I think there was a lot of that stuff going in there. In a way, they've got themselves to blame. You know, if you go back to quantitative easy, when money was made cheap and easy, you kept feeding the system uh, with easy money, then people started taking advantage of that. And the pendulum was absolutely due to swing. And so you had a lowering of credit standards, you had potential term and interest rate uh, exposure and mismatch, which manifest. And then, you know, the reality stepped in and everyone started increasing interest rates and suddenly this stuff did cost money and you didn't have negative real interest rates and there, there was a cost to borrowing money yeah, yeah, yeah. and the system collapsed. Now, I don't think the system's collapsed and I think what's very clever this time is that they're rescuing depositors, not banks. Yes. I mean, just talking about the things that, you know, shooting yourself in the foot. If you look back at the recent history of Credit Suisse, it is amazing that, you know, how much a bank can do wrong in a very short amount of time. I've just been reading, of course, like everybody, they, they got a criminal conviction for allowing drug dealers to launder money through Bulgaria. They were entangled in the Mozambique corruption case. There was a spying scandal, of course, between the, the chief executive and the head of wealth. They got into association with this disgraced financier, Lex Greenstill. And then they invested in New York-based investment firm, Archigos Capital Management, all of which show a litany of errors. And when there is some doubt in the banking system, of course, everybody looks for the weakest culprit or the most vulnerable culprit. And in this case, it was Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse is management. If you have enough failed blood tests, you're going to die. Okay, that's how it works. Okay. And by the way, banking was never designed to be an exciting place. Okay. It was meant to be a staid, conservative, considered place. It was not meant to be a place that financed fabulous new ideas and things. It, it financed stayed predictable cash flows, and it was allowed because of that and because it was 
accurately overseen. It was allowed to have a debt equity ratio, which no other organization in the world is allowed to have. No one else has got 90% debt and 10% equity financing their lives. Weren't you a banker at a point? I mean, it just sounds like you. We don't have to bring up the past. I mean, come on, man. Ordinary, no excitement in your life. That sounds definitely like a Mark Barnes. I am the manifestation of the boring banker. <laughs> I am the poster child of the boring banker. Okay. Yeah. No, right. But there's a difference. There's a big difference. I was an investment banker. I was involved in corporate finance. I wasn't involved in creditors. You know, credit decisions don't require cleverness. They require predictability. They require a systemic understanding of the risk of the normal distribution of risk. That means you can price it properly and you can get a small return on assets, translating into a huge return on equity because of the balance sheet structure. Credit is for people who are cautious and considered. Investment banking and trading and all of that other stuff should be a small part of banks, which they're now going to limit it. In the takeover, they said they're going to have no more than 15% of the bank's assets, the combined bank's assets in these exciting, more exciting trading and investing kind of areas. And that's appropriate for banks. But in the long term, the world wants more. And banks are being disintermediated at a rate of knots. And that's going to have its own problems where we don't see the invisible informal markets and the destruction that inappropriately priced credit causes, particularly here. There is. Although I must say, in terms of this latest development, I think we're okay. I think we're well regulated. Our banking system is well understood. And so I'm only concerned about our gray listing and the sort of reasons why that's there, like money laundering and things of that nature, which, as you mentioned in your Credit Swiss summary of sins, we have some of those ourselves. And so I'm not concerned, but we should be aware of two things, that the gray listing causes and the informal market on which there are no real numbers that we can test and rely on. It's touch and go at this point. It's very difficult to predict what will happen to banking around the world. And uh, I think the problem is if this escalates, everybody's so keen for this, very keen for this not to escalate into a global crisis. So they, they're trying to stem the blood flow extremely fast. I just wonder how much the process of saving a bank makes the atmosphere for banking worse. You know, there is a reverse psychology aspect to all of this. But generally speaking, we know banks are in a better position than they were in 2008. But is that just because of the state of affairs of things? Are banks just servants to the rules of the economy? And listen, I think there's a case to be made for allowing banks to fail. I don't think there's a case to be made for allowing depositors to suffer. Okay. Yes. But I think there's definitely a case to be made to let the bank fail. Give the depositors back their money or swap the depositors forcibly into a more stable balance sheet. Yes. Because if we get to a point where it's a buyer beware from a depositor's point of view, we have a problem. Yeah. But uh, if bank management, Swiss bank management has failed, let the bank fail. Save the deposit. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's obviously what they're doing in this case. In the Credit Suisse case, though, the shareholders more or less get wiped out. Yeah. Well, that's appropriate. I think that, I mean, first of all, there's an immediacy of action, which was not there in the good old days or the bad old days, whichever you want to, you know, there's immediate information. You can call this together on a Thursday night and you can have a deal by Sunday evening, you know, and that's because information is readily available. Yep. I'm a bit puzzled though. For example, people are saying that in the Silicon Valley Bank, the reason that defaulted is because they had long-term assets, which they did have, against short-term liabilities. So when there's a run on the on the deposits, they can't sell the gilts fast enough. But if those were treasuries. 
in the good old days, again, you'd be able to go to the window, the banking liquidity provider, with those treasuries and get the liquidity because you had the ultimate asset, which is a U.S. treasury or a sovereign treasury. And so I'm a bit curious why that liquidity was not made available to them because they had an underlying asset and they could have done liquidity swaps, so to speak. But I'm not sure we know all of the detail. I think that banking has got to stay in its lane and be boring and be accurate and be properly overseen in the name of depositors' health and stop trying to get too clear and too fancy because that's where the bonuses are and that's where the trouble happens. Yeah. All right, let's move on. You wanted to talk about the buying of your degree, your master's. Why do you think it's a good idea for government ministers to buy their degrees? I mean, there is an efficiency advantage, right? <laughs> Look, you can save a whole lot of time by not having to go to university, okay? And then you don't have to incur a student loan or any of that nonsense and go out and patrush and on. You just give yourself a degree or the basic one, and then you go and get a master's. Again, this is led by a fallacy. The fallacy is this, that if you have a degree, particularly a doctorate, how do you know someone's got a doctorate? They tell you, okay? And this doesn't make you an astute business person or a leader. What it might do in the right fields is make you an expert. Okay? Now, experts don't have to be rock stars. Experts are people that you go to when you need to get into the technical details or something. So this notion that you need to have a degree to get a job is rubbish. The Minister of Public Service and Administration, Minister Kivit, who allegedly has... Who got an M degree without a B degree. That's right. There's an aspect of this which is just so painful. I always think that people talk about intelligence. They talk about a, a singular notion of intelligence. Is this person an intelligent person? And then you can tell an intelligent person because they have degrees. It's a sort of reverse indicator. It's not what you learned during your degree. It's the fact that you have one. Your own experience tells you that there's different kinds of intelligence. How many businessmen are there out there who never got a degree? Loads. And they also have an intelligence. There's a kind of intelligence about what people need and want, you know, which is different from the intelligence that you get by being able to calculate the square root of minus one. There's creative intelligence too. Intelligence that comes from being sensible. I always think that people who do, who write up intelligence tests, Basically, what they're doing is they're writing up the tests that they themselves would do well in. Listen, I think, first of all, intelligence is a highly misused word. Intelligence usually technically refers to information or the assimilation of information, not to cleverness, as we're discussing. And I think the only measure of cleverness is original thought. Anything that can be learned is not intelligent. It's just labor. It's just toil. Okay, And so we can all learn to do things. And I heard somewhere that if you do 10,000 hours of anything, you can maybe have a chance of being any, something good at it. But it is a proxy in some specialist fields. Like, for example, you can't, by popular vote, become a dentist. Okay? You have to learn how to do that stuff inside someone's mouth. And being a dentist, exactly like a bank, which is a licensed profession, entitles yes. the public to go there, open their mouths, and let you have a go. And that BDS, bits, whatever it is, thing, gives us confidence, as it should. I mean, when you put yourself under anesthetic in 1% away from a coma, you do it because the guy's an anesthetist, okay? Not because he's your mate. Anyway, so I think there are degrees which illustrate knowledge, but they don't illustrate seniority or power or influence or leader, and least of all leadership. In fact, 
it's almost common cause that deeply technical academics are not well known to be the world's leaders out there. We need people who can go out and fight seas. And I think in this country, we need, you know, beyond university, tertiary, we need artisans and we need, we need people who can get a job, not who can put doctor behind their name or M behind their name. I think we misguided it and it's a wannabe thing. Yes. And it does cover up some problems that we have in, in sort of relative value systems. Alrighty, let's move on. You wanted to talk about the sort of is South Africa turning into a mafia state with this uh, complete sh- shocker? Listen, we are we are a mafia state, Tim. Uh, there's, we've passed that point. What got to me was when professionals who are not politicians or who haven't taken sides who are just executing a function like being a liquidator or an auditor or something get murdered for doing their job. We cannot tolerate or abide people being killed who are doing their job in the pursuit of truth, yeah. justice, or anything like that. Not take sides, not ideology. But if we get to a point where a professional cannot practice his expertise in finding truth without being killed, then I get bloody cross. No, I mean, this is, this is a complete shocker. This is, of course, about the Murray family. And down the shooting of, of Tuta Murray, who's the very high-profile Basasa liquidator. And then, of course, you know, his son is 28 years old in the shooting. And it obviously wasn't part of the intended hit. But if you open fire with a machine gun on a car at an off-ramp, you're going to kill a lot, a lot of people. This is another test for South Africa's police force. Honestly, I do think that, you know, that there should be certain crimes which are resignation crimes. In other words, we should classify certain crimes as if they don't if they don't find the people who did this within a certain amount of time, then the minister should be scorped. You know what I mean? I, 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 there, there has to be some kind of intensified incentive to fix certain problems, and this is one of them. Let's segue from that into the topic that I wanted to talk about, which was marriage. How do you feel about marriage, Mark? Are you positive on marriage? We're angels fear to treat. Let's go. First of all, I think that the, the initial reasons for marriage, it seems to me, were based in economics and lineage. There was this economic unit which had to be formed and this lineage which had to be protected so that your heirs weren't mixed up. I think those two are redundant. I think that in the next decade, and if you were to ask 20 olds today, we're going to have relationships completely redefined and there's going to be coexistence and there's going to be sharing of this and mixing of that and so on. And I'm not sure it's all a good thing. I think marriage, if you indeed find the perfect partner, if such a thing existed, it's still first prize, I think. But we're redefining it. No, no, this is why the, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I read a piece of research that just come out. So what happened was that uh, two researchers took a sample of 11,000 American nurses, all women who were not married, and then they compared those who got married between 1989 and 1993 and those who remained unmarried. And then they just did an assessment 25 years later. So they had to wait 25 years to see how, how things came up. Okay. So it's just extraordinary how much better women did who got married compared to the women who didn't. Even those who subsequently divorced. That's the sort of weird part about it. And the most obvious of the many sort of categories, areas that they did better, they did better. Their level of wealth was better. Their level of you know, life satisfaction, et cetera, was better. But they also had a 35% lower risk of death. I mean, it was just, of course, as you say, I think marriage is changing. And you know, the people who did the study do point out that there's a lot more cohabitation now, 
or long-term cohabitation now than there ever has been. And we don't know what the result of that will be. But the fact that it makes sense to get married for economic and social and personal reasons. Yeah, there's some old adages which come to mind. The first one is that the more time you spend apart, the longer you're going to be together. I think independent coexistence is the sort of new game, and I can see the virtue in that. You know, I would also say uh, that with a bit of tongue in cheek, that even if you don't live longer because you're married, it'll certainly feel that way. Okay, but I'll get into trouble for that. No, I think also, you know, the being single thing, and I count myself amongst those, it's not without anxiety. It's not without loneliness. It's not without abnormally high self-reflection and testing and wondering. And as people get into a certain age, whether they are divorced or widowed or single, the, the game is very different and the needs for coexistence perhaps come to the fore. It's much more stressful, I would argue, the uncertainty of singledom, if there is such a thing. But it can be, I'm told, I hear from other people that it can be a lot of fun. <laughs> yes. I've been listening to this comedian who says that your marriage vows are a little bit like your Miranda rights because you have the right to stay stubbornly silent for as long as you want. <laughs> and everything that you say will be held against you again and again. Yeah. But it's a, I think it's an interesting institution. It's an interesting sort of political debate too because uh, governments have stopped encouraging marriage. You know, they've stopped incentivizing marriage. And I just wonder whether that's a good thing. I've been married for quite a long time. I've loved it. I think it's been... It's oh, well rescued there, Tim. No, well dug out of the hole here. <laughs> yeah, well done. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Okay, Mark, thanks very much. This has been an interesting chat. As always, please do send us suggestions about what we should talk about. We're very open to them. This past week, we were compared to Jeremy Clarkson. We know the Jeremy Clarkson of financial debates and discussion, which uh, we were sort of wondering whether that's a good thing or not. But anyway, I mean, he's very famous. That's always a good thing. I'd be flattered to find myself in the company of comparison with such a yeah, no, exactly. great commentator. But please do rate our podcast if you like it and enjoy your public holiday. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod, pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please, please contact, contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.